I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Pete Davis is a writer and civic advocate from Falls Church, Virginia. He works on civic projects aimed at deepening American democracy and solidarity. He's the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, a state policy organization focused on raising up ideas that deepen democracy. In 2015, he co-founded Getaway, a company that provides simple, unplugged escapes to tiny cabins outside of major cities. His Harvard Law School graduation speech, A Counterculture of Commitment, has been viewed more than 30 million times. Pete, thanks so much for joining us today. So glad to be here, Michael. And hello, listeners. And there's a lot I'm looking forward to talking about with you today. And the bulk of it actually has to do with something you didn't even mention in your intro, which is your recent book entitled Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And that idea that you coin in your book, although I suppose you first coined it in that Harvard Law School graduation speech we'll talk about in just a moment, is something you call infinite browsing mode. But first, I'd like to start by cribbing a beautifully significant line from the poem, The Abnormal Is Not Courage by Jack Gilbert, which you quote, at the start of your book. And it goes something like this, the normal excellence of long accomplishment. And I want to repeat that because I think it's relevant to our discussion today. The normal excellence of long accomplishment. And this is a through line of the book dedicated and of, I would say, your life's work so far. So I look forward to exploring that with you. And thanks again for coming on. Oh, so appreciate it. I love that poem. I was so glad I got to put it at the beginning of the book. So there's a line from your 2018 Harvard commencement speech that says, quote, the most radical act we can take is to make a commitment to a particular thing, to a place, to a profession, to a cause, to a community, to a person, to show our love for something by working at it for a long time, end quote. So I guess to start us off, Pete, what inspired you? What was the inciting incident in your life that inspired you to write that speech for the Harvard commencement in 2018? And then... What caused you to turn that speech into a full-length book? It was a story of two streams in my life coming together. So the first stream was that I think we're living in very dark times. People feel that this isn't the best of times right now. There's a sense that we're very isolated. Community is in decline. There's a sense that there's major political problems that are not getting solved. There's a sense that our institutions have lost trust. They're being corrupted. And there's a feeling that certain hopes that might have appeared earlier in people my age's life were dashed, and they turned out to either be paper tigers or charlatans or something. And so people were feeling very down when I was given the speech, and I think people are feeling pretty down today too. And so I've always been searching for what is the answer? You know, what is the path forward? What is the light in the darkness? And when I turned to older people for that light, for that path, they kept giving us this message of, well, you know, everything's so changing, everything's so chaotic. Best you can do is keep your options open. That was the phrase we kept hearing. It was almost like a creed of my education. (laughs) I kept hearing from adults, the purpose of life is to keep your options open. I've heard that before. But this now gets into the second stream. So I was kind of bothered by this advice, feeling like it wasn't adequate. It wasn't addressing the problems in the world. And it wasn't making us feel good inside of that chaotic world. So the people that were keeping their options open were not getting what we wanted done. But then the second stream started appearing. I started noticing that the people that were addressing the problems in the world, that were healing the brief breach that were reviving the institutions, that were giving us hope, 
And also the people that seem to be most at peace and feeling joyful in the struggle with turning our world around were the people who totally ignored that advice. They were the people who fell in love with particular things, people who had made commitments over the long haul on things. And I started noticing that these people were what I eventually came to call long haul heroes. And so I said, oh, you know, I want to kind of look into these questions of why are we being told to keep our options open? And who are these counterculture of committers that decided to do something different? I love that you've done that, by the way, that you've <laughs> you've taken a rather old-fashioned bit of wisdom, which is that commitment is something that should be cherished and pursued. And you've made that the counterculture. Although I imagine, yeah, in the 21st century, just like you were saying, when everyone our age and younger is being encouraged to have as many experiences as possible, leave all your options open. You know, th- there's a metaphor that you use repeatedly in the book. It's this visual of a long hallway with a bunch of open doors, and you can just go into any door you want. And it is interesting that for basically all of human history until five minutes ago, traditional norms were committing, that now it's become a counterculture. Why do you think that's been the case? It's actually the only major chapter that got cut for my original draft because it almost could have been its own book, which is like, why did this happen? And I wanted to keep the book focused on the future and what you can do as an individual now, like no need to litigate why this all happened. But as I was looking into why this all happened, there's a lot of possible suspects and culprits out there. The most obvious one is it's technology. And I don't think it's just the internet. It's kind of like a hundred year story of basically, if you used to live in one place, it was hard to get to some other place and it was hard to get ideas from some other place to you. And suddenly travel got a lot easier. You know, suddenly you got the train and the car and the plane, and it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And used to be to go across town would have been a whole day to get lunch. And now it can hop in your car and go see another subculture somewhere. And then it's also that it got easier for ideas to get to you. So I read these accounts that were in the original draft of the book of when the radio first came to a city, or when the telephone first came to a city, or when the movies first came to a city. And suddenly... People in a land far, far away were telling you of another way you could live. And suddenly when you're inundated with all these different things you can see and all these different ways of being, the grip of the way of being that you were born into becomes loose. So technology is one big part of this. I think there's also a cultural aspect of this. The things that attached you to commitments, there's been a decline in. So there used to be, you know, a much more large set of civic organizations and religious communities and things like that, at least in American life, where you would meet the mentor that would tell you, hey, I know it's really hard to make a choice, but I'm also an electrician and let me show you what being an electrician's like. And it's a very proud thing to be a part of. And suddenly when you don't have those mentors and those community groups and those things that kind of attached to it. And also significantly, like the stories and the myths and the cultural encouragement that comes around joining a profession or having a wedding ceremony or being part of a place and having pride in place. That is also something that's loosening the stuff that helps make you transition into these commitments. So I think there's a technological aspect and a cultural aspect too. I would agree. You reference Robert Putnam in the book dedicated and also throughout your work multiple times. It's clear that he's had a big influence on you. And he's someone we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, whether it be with John Wood Jr. of Braver Angels, writer and civic engager Alexandra Hudson, Monica Guzman, also from Braver Angels, this idea of the atomization of society and the disappearance 
of some of the organizations and communities that we in the past have rallied around, right? And I guess my question is to you, Pete, and it's a big one. <laughs> I'm kind of tossing aside my outline for a second, just jumping ahead. No, I, give me the hardest, th- throw me the hardest pitch. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> there is a tension between what you call indifference culture and honor culture, which you talk about at length in the book, right? Actually, before we get into that, can you explain to the listener what the difference between an indifference culture is and an honor culture and how those two things can kind of be in tension in our society? Yeah, you know, and I'm using honor culture differently than some sociologists who use honor culture to describe these Scotch-Irish descendant communities where you're quick to fight if someone dishonors you. When I'm talking about indifference and honor culture, maybe we could start with indifference culture. Basically, the question is, when you're living your life, are you part of a community that is indifferent to you or are you part of a community that is engaged with you and cares about what you do? And so in an indifference culture, no one's kind of watching to see if you're doing good or you're doing bad or you have something worth celebrating or you have something worth condemning or you had a milestone in your life that's worth marking versus an honor culture where there is maybe a shared goal for the community, that there's a sense of a shared fabric that you're part of, where when you do things that live up to the values of that community, you're celebrated. When you become an elder and you've lived up to that community for a long time and you're a young person watching that elder, you're going to things where the elders are talking and they're being celebrated and you're seeing that that's something worthy of celebration. When you die, people have funerals and people come to them. Is the community indifferent to you? Or is the community not indifferent to you? And the reason I say honor instead of like indifference versus not indifference is there are things worth honoring in that community. It's worth honoring people. There is a sense of honor. You know, when you say I have a sense of honor, you're saying I want to live up to the values of this community. And ultimately, there's this great philosopher, Alastair McIntyre, who says all senses of personal meaning and heroism in your own life only exist because a community is around you telling you what is meaningful or important. So if Michael Jordan is shooting a round ball into a round hoop, and there was not a community of practice called basketball, nothing would be sublime about what Michael Jordan is doing. He'd be a crazy guy. You're like, what is he doing? Yeah, yeah, it's just a random crazy guy. (laughs) Even if Michael Jordan had like a semi-developed practice that he was part of. Let's say there was like a little bit of a practice of basketball. That would be a little bit more sublime because you and your 10 friends who invented this hoop and ball game get to have like this internal thing of the 10 of you watching each other being like, oh, we decided getting the ball into the hoop is cool. But the reason that Michael Jordan, or if you watch like the Jordan doc, The Last Dance, and you like cry at the end of how amazing it was, it's because it's a community of practice that has developed so grandly. And it's not just that Michael Jordan does amazing things. It's that because there are players, because there are jerseys, because there's a culture of announcing, because there's a Hall of Fame, because people decided to keep stats, because the refs decided to live up to something, because they built a board that wrote the rules, because they have stadiums and cultures around stadiums, because there's this idea of the ring and there's this cultural symbol of getting the ring when you win and he gets five rings or something, uh, or I guess he had six rings, I don't know. Uh, And all of that adds up to make when he shoots that last second shot to win a game, it to be very sublime. And there's a small version of that in everything we do in community. And so that's what I meant by this, which is that 
the depth of sublimity and beauty and meaning in our life is determined by if there's a community that shares that with us. So there's not necessarily a total tension between individualism and community because the highest feats of individualism can only exist if there is community. Yes. Actually, in the book, you reference democratic theorist John Dewey. You wrote, quote, he argued that it's wrong to think about the self and society as fully separate entities. The self, in Dewey's view, is constructed in part by society. Freedom to Dewey was not freedom from society, but freedom through society, which is such a great point. I guess my follow-up question then, can an honor culture, as you define it, sustain itself without those institutions that were famously cataloged deteriorating in Robert Putnam's bowling alone, places like bowling leagues or the church, fraternal organizations, these kind of shared communal commitments, an idea of a shared community. How can those continue to endure when the physical entities themselves have kind of gone away in many respects and been replaced by this atomized kind of internet, infinite browsing culture that you describe so well in this book? And then also specifically culturally, how can that continue, right? Because I feel like with Generation X and then majorly accelerating with millennials like us. And then with Gen Z, it just seems to be accelerating even further. This idea that rules or restrictions or guideposts or the very things that can define an honor culture, the very things that make the game of basketball worth playing, to use a lighter example, you know, no one wants to be trapped in the town in Footloose, right? But I think we also don't want uh, to be living in a life of the trust devoid wastelands of Mad Max. So that's the tension I'm trying to figure out how we resolve, especially with our generation, is we want to be free. That's blasted in every commercial, in so many activist campaigns. Be your true self, be whoever you want to be. But if we want to have some semblance of an honor culture, there are going to be rules that in some ways dictate our commitments or our sense of self, no? Yes, totally. I kind of have a hardcore answer on one side of this. There's kind of like a wishy-washy answer that one could have, which is like, there are ways we can find this thing without institutions. And I just don't believe it. I think the answer is basically to have a culture. This is one of my favorite phrases from the philosopher Roberto Unger. All of our ideals are nailed to the cross of our institutions, by which he means everything that we want eventually has to be baked into an institution. It has to be baked into a pattern and practice that has some stickiness beyond just, we all want this right now in this immediate moment. So I honestly think you can't really have a culture without having organizations, without having cultural institutions, without having traditions, things like that. Does it need to be the ones of the 50s that Putnam talks about going down? Does it need to be the church as it was in the 50s? Does it need to be the Kiwanis Club? Does it need to be, worse off, these creepy, unjust, horrible institutions that existed back then that definitely is good that we got rid of? No, but it has to be something. And the basic unit of culture is commitment. It's basically the basic unit is people saying, we want this now, and we're going to embed that spirit that we want now into an organization. And there might be moments where we don't feel as passionate as we do now, but we're going to do it anyway, and we're going to bind ourselves a bit to do it in the future because that's worth it in the long run. And so I don't think we think enough about the micro institutions that lead to culture being revived. You know, there are these conservative politicians that give these speeches all the time, like, we need to have culture, we need to have the kids, the kids have lost their way, we need the kids to find their way. But they never put their money where the mouth is and do the hard work 
of building up institutions. Like one of the things I'm a big proponent of is I think every local community should have a Hall of Fame. And then they should have a Hall of Fame ceremony that's really fun every year. Because when you have a Hall of Fame, that's one institution where you say, we as a community are deciding that we're going to have a culture where we have some shared values of what we value in this community. And instead of writing those shared values in the abstract, like we're going to write some kind of sanctimonious book about these shared values, we're going to embody it in the concrete by saying we're going to award people for those values every year and point out that this is a person that we think young people should emulate. And that person's going to give a speech and then they're going to kind of be painted into the Hall of Fame of their town. That's one example of a cultural institution. That's a bulwark. Another one is a holiday where you celebrate some virtue. Another one is having community meetings where you meet once a week or once a month where virtues are celebrated. Another is having personal education and development that many of these civic organizations used to do, starting with the Masons, but even the much less intense ones than the Masons. They have people come and have shared community experiences of talking about what are the values we want to live by. And then things that gather people together to actually do the work of putting those virtues into action. You know, I love the great St. Francis phrase, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Having shared activities where we do things together to live by these virtues. Out of that, out of those relationships, out of those shared experiences comes a culture. And culture is very powerful. It can get a lot of things done. I agree. Yeah. Culture is just a story we tell ourselves. I've grown up writing stories. I was publishing stories as a teenager and I went on to do filmmaking as an adult. And so I don't use that just lightly. I mean, institutions are stories. The Hall of Fame is a story. Basketball is a story. Society is a story. History is a story. And I wonder if... In America, the idea of commitment is especially hard because even before the internet, the stories we've been telling ourselves, the Oregon Trail, uprooting your life and heading out to the metaphorical or literal West, this idea of the hyper-individual who abandons everything he or she has behind him or her and moves out to make a name for themselves, right? On one hand, that can be our greatest strength. I mean, some of modern society's most famous entrepreneurs have either come to America to pursue that dream or have been born here. But it does seem antithetical to the idea that you're espousing, which is that sometimes the most radical act we can take is to set down roots somewhere and tell a story of continuity rather than, and then I jumped here, and then two years later I went there. I think why your idea seems so radical is not only because of the era of the novelty machine, the internet that we live in today, but also because in some respects, it goes counter to the very story that America has been telling itself for hundreds of years. Yeah, you know, this is funny. And there's debates in the intellectual history of the U.S. about, and this happens with all of history, which is that we rediscover parts of ourselves when we have an interest in raising up those parts of ourselves in different times. So, for example, I love that because we've had a racial justice reckoning in our country in the last five years, one of the extra you know, gravy on top of those justice movements is that we're raising up parts of American history that were other racial justice reckonings like the abolitionists and Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells are getting more spotlight now because of a thing we care about now. And I think the kind of rugged individualist go west was of service to people in the present moment when that was raised up. But I think it was Gordon Wood. There were folks that tried to raise up in the American story too, the history of us being a very communal place. This is kind of like the de Tocquevillian tradition, Alexis de Tocqueville, the Frenchman who came to study America in the 1830s. He said the biggest phenomenon about America is they have clubs. 
you know, they have organizations, they have associations, whereas in other places, the king deals with it, or the government deals with it, or the kind of economic bosses deal with it. In America, when there's a problem, the community all gets together and decides how to solve it. And, you know, there's a whole other set of strand of American history that you could write that's just like America's a great story of community. So just to draw out a few, you know, Ben Franklin, he's one of the great communitarian American founders. He started in, he moved to a city. He had kind of like an America reinvent yourself story where he kind of moves to this new city, begs, borrows, steals through cunning and wits and wooing people to like establish himself in Philadelphia and leave behind this other world and make it on his own. But then what he started doing in Philadelphia was he started the Junto Club, which was a collection of other people. And he said, let's start talking about public problems in Philadelphia and let's see how we can solve it. Oh, you have books and I have books and you have books, but we all want to read each other's books. Let's pile them all together and make a library. Oh, you know, we should probably have a fire station. Oh, here's some things I learned about the postal service in other countries. We should have a postal service. And on and on and on. And that's the civic and communal spirit of America. And let alone the stories of folks in these kind of Western towns that only had each other and had to figure out how are we going to build a well? How are we going to have a local government? Things like that. And all the 60s movements, you could retell the story of the 60s movements. This is something Putnam is big on. Not as stories of individual rights folks fighting against the conformity of the old time and asserting their individual rights. No, the civil rights movement and the environmental movement and the women's movement and the gay rights movement were actually stories of communities with unbreakable solidarity that had built up living under the pain of the oppression they were facing, built strong enough communities that they were able to turn that communal spirit into power that allowed them to win victories for justice for themselves. So I think we can draw on these different stories and whichever one, if we want to fight for a more communitarian America, we have to tell a communitarian history of America too. Yeah, the story we tell ourselves and that we tell ourselves as a nation is so powerful because you're right. And I think we see that playing out writ large in politics and on the internet, like people having a sometimes quite acrimonious fight about what the story of America should be because what the story of America is in the same way, what is the story of a family? What is the story of a friendship? What is the story of a town, a community, a church, et cetera? The story we tell ourselves about a thing is what the thing becomes. We're going to go far afield of what, of what I originally wanted to talk about with you today, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up because this has been something that's been in my brain for a little bit. Speaking of Robert Putnam, right? I wonder if the idea of American community being a central force and central theme in our society is born out of our diversity, specifically our ethnic diversity. And in the past, also our religious diversity played a much larger role in what separated or binded us. You're very familiar with Putnam's work. And something that has been kind of spinning around in my brain ever since I read it was his 2007 study on how diversity can affect societies. And <laughs> just reading it, it's, it's kind of bleak because he kind of shows in a decent amount of detail how ethnic diversity specifically can have a double-digit point percentage decrease in civic engagement and trust and cohesion. To bring it around, I have a thesis on potentially how to solve it rooted in something that you just said, but I really want to get your thoughts because you're much more engaged in this than I am. Do you think that the very thing that Tocqueville was talking about, America's embrace of smaller individual communities, communities of common interest and mission of common feeling, is that the very solution to the, I don't know what other way to to word it, 
the quote-unquote problem of diversity that Putnam pointed out in his 2007 study? I think what he discovered was basically if people conceive of themselves as different from each other, and those differences are very salient. So let's abstract away from specifically ethnic diversity, but like any kinds of diversity. When people have salient differences from each other, so let's talk about salient versus unsalient. Eye color is not very salient in American life right now, or left-handedness is not very salient in American life right now, but you know, ethnic diversity is very salient. And here's an example of a thing that we have changes in salience over time. So for example, you know, there was a sitcom in America in the 50s that was literally just about a Jewish person marrying a Catholic person. And it was a funny situational comedy because it would be such a wild thing. It does seem archaic now. Yeah. Yes. It was called, um, <laughs> let me find, it was called like Bernie Loves the Name of the Woman. And it was a Jewish man and a Catholic woman. And it would not have been a situational comedy in the 50s for a Republican to marry a Democrat. Today, you really couldn't have a situational comedy about a Jewish person marrying a Catholic person, but you could have a situational comedy about a Democratic family and a Republican family that have to have Thanksgiving together because their children fall in love. And so what is that a story of? That's a story of salient differences changing among people. And what Putnam points out is his hope for overcoming diversity is we get to decide democratically, communally. Not through a vote where we all decide, but through cultural advocacy and projects and things that bring people together in interesting ways. We get to decide what do we want our salient facts about ourselves to be. And the thing is, if you had a politically diverse community where half the people were Dems and half the people were Republicans, you'd probably see the same difficulties where community goes down because you know that you can't talk freely with people who share your subculture in a community. and. The way to overcome that is to have that salient difference be overcome. And I think the same is true with ethnic diversity, which is one of the beautiful things that America has had some success in doing, it's had challenges in other ways, is find ways of connecting people across lines that previously were salient and creating different salient things. One of the aspects of America's dynamism is that what is salient and what lines are crossed and what communities are formed is a burbling cauldron that can change. And the danger is when the burbling cauldron stops and you say, these are forever our salient differences. So I think what comes out of Putnam's 2007 study is it's going to take a lot more work. It's not automatically easy, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we get out of that challenge too. I don't know if I have a better answer than what you just provided. I think it's well said. I mean, I'm the son of an Armenian mother and an Irish father. I mean, not literally from those countries, but descendants of people who came from those places. And when they were married in 1980, it was non-news. It was, it was, it was non-controversial. But I imagine had it been 80 years prior, our first great wave of migration, it would have been a pretty big deal for all the wrong reasons. So I'm with you there. I guess my question is, as a follow-up, Let's go back to what you were talking about with the Hall of Fame, right? And I'm only prodding here, not because I disagree with this idea. I love the idea of communities having Hall of Fames. That's actually like, it's really sweet. And I mean that the best way possible. Like it reminds me of a really fantastic episode of Parks and Recreation. I think more communities should have it. Again, you talk about the internet as the novelty machine. The novelty machine these days is also often the outrage machine, right? Where you can get anyone who's dedicated enough, just a single person can churn up enough outrage, maybe because they were excluded from the Hall of Fame for whatever reason. And then something that could potentially cohere a community can be disrupted from within or without. 
because it's not whatever inclusive enough or i mean those words can be manipulated right how can communities practice cohesion in an era where it can be hard to start movements because of internal strife i'm not sure if you've written on it exactly i've read many of your essays but not all of them but there's internal strife within progressive movements because some people say it's not progressive enough or some say it's too progressive or it's not the right kind of progressivism this whole thing of outrage can actually destroy a movement that might actually lead to real good so i guess my larger question is when the novelty machine is an outrage machine how do we forward good causes like the ones that you're working on with the democracy policy network and how do we form communities there's this wonderful idea i learned from ralph nader it's kind of a contrary to conventional wisdom idea. So in conventional wisdom, people say, in the abstract, we all agree. We all have the same ideals in America. We all have the same vision of where we want to be. And then they throw out these words that they think everyone agrees with, like fairness or equality or justice or freedom or opportunity, You know, any of these words. But concretely, as we try to turn our ideals to the concrete projects, then we all start disagreeing. And so the answer is go back to our ideals and talk about them. And then out of that, we can deal with our disagreements in the concrete and have compromises in the concrete things. Ralph goes, I actually think it's totally the opposite. In America, we all have totally wildly different visions of where America should go. We have totally different values. We have totally different ideals. When you ask every American, where do you envision... It's actually going to be a totally different thing. And if you sit in the abstract, you're going to fight more. Concretely, if we get down to the brass tacks of concrete local projects, it doesn't mean everyone agrees on those concrete local things, but you're going to have actually much more overlap there. And so the answer on that question is do your best to keep it concrete. Go a little more local go a little more close to the problem at hand and try to avoid the things that are pulling you to have these abstract debates. So we might disagree on this, but could we agree on in this specific school, what do we want to do? In this specific town, what do we want to do? And I've seen a lot of the large polarization debates go away when you get to a town. That strategy is starting to get harder and harder because the big national debates have bad actors that are trying to bring these giant national fights to local places, but we just need to resist them. One of the practices, I think, of civic hygiene, we need to not allow too much of that national screen polarization stuff getting into our local things. The second thing, and I'm very inspired by the Pope Francis and the Catholic Church on this, He's dealing with giant polarization, too, in his giant institution, even harder than America in some ways, a 2,000-year-old billion-person entity that has huge divides in it. And his whole big thing is, like, instead of fighting, he's challenging people to get closer to other people and not even talk about the abstract things, just get closer and build those real relationships. And so one of the things is, how can we get closer to people? Like, if you're going to have an opinion about this or that community or this or that group or this or that person who's part of this or that social phenomenon, can we challenge ourselves to actually build those relationships with those, you know, across divides and those people and those things that we're talking about in the abstract? And out of that, out of a listening heart, out of a real relationship that doesn't have an agenda with someone, out of that might come the answers. I hear all these people talking about this rise in crime, these communities, these people, you know, what are we going to do about them? We got to lock them up. And I always want to challenge them. I go, 
let alone if there is actual rise in crime, you know, that might not be true. I go, well, you know, in the olden days, if some kid was stealing stuff in your community, you'd think about that kid as your kid. And you'd think about how you can play a role in helping that kid have a better life that's above the table. Why aren't you building a relationship with that kid? (laughs) That sounds really unrealistic, but there's so many people out there that are trying to be superheroes. There's all these podcasts out there about, are you going to be a superheroic man? And I go, well, can we get 1% of this country to decide to do courageous things like that? To decide to go above and beyond and be these super citizens that we need that are going to build these surprising relationships that might repair breaches and heal divides and bring us together again? I think that's a challenge that is a chance to have a deeply meaningful impact, an opportunity for heroism here. I agree. And what you were saying about anchoring discussions and disagreements in the concrete, I mean, that's exactly what I learned years ago in couples therapy in one of my past relationships. Again, it's all about stories. We tell these stories in our heads that often become stories of fictional disagreements that we think we have based on the time that we spend in our minds alone, right? But what was so revolutionary about that therapy specifically was what I took from it was once you go from the abstract, you know, Pete thinks this and I think this and he doesn't want this and I want this. The therapist would be like, okay, let's talk about a concrete example of something you think Pete might want. And then just have him say it in his own words. And then we would practice something known as mirroring, which journalist Amanda Ripley also goes into great detail about in her book, High Conflict, about how mirroring can help resolve conflicts within larger societies, and not just person-to-person bases. But it was so shocking that once you get into the concrete, whether it's in couples therapy or at the communal level, and you talk about a specific instance or a specific problem or a specific solution, a lot of that tension begins to dissolve because it turns out that when you're just thinking in the abstract, a lot of the stories you're telling yourself actually aren't real or they're exaggerations of what something actually is. So you might think of something as 100%. It might be like, oh my God, this big humongous thing is so scary. Then you get into a concrete and you're like, oh, we're quibbling over where to put a stop sign. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Totally, totally. You know, it's funny. It involves some vulnerability to actually think about what you actually want. Because, you know, I see sometimes during midterm election season where they do these man on the street interviews where they ask voters what they're voting on. And, you know, they go outside these polling places and they're like, what are you voting on? And all the people usually just parrot back something that one of the two sides has told you that you're voting on. That's so true. And nothing against them. It's like something that was invented in a poll-tested room as being an, a thing that might work or something. It's like it was invented a year ago or something as a thing. And one of the things we have to get to in politics is we have to actually try to reflect on, like, what do we actually want? We need to get the voices of the centralized elites trying to manipulate us out of our heads. And actually think, you know, not be a foot soldier for them, but actually think, what do I actually want in my community? And, you know, I think if you start thinking and you start practicing on a day-to-day life, what do I actually want in my community? What problems do I actually think are public problems? What are systems that we actually think aren't working? We need more practice concretely thinking about that so that it's not just our heads being filled up with the latest outrage. One thing I also learned from Ralph Nader, who's a real institutional watchdog, he likes thinking about kind of the systems that make up America. There are so many systems 
that make up our public life. There's how our water gets to us. That's how our electricity gets to us. There's the supply chain. There's how the school runs. There's how the hospital runs. There's the way the hospital does billing. There's all these concrete little specific things. And if we have a civic personality where we say, you know, the civic personality is like, I want to co-create those things. I think those things should be open to revision. I care about those things being the best they can be. Suddenly, you're grounding what you find to be important to you in that specific thing. And you have to be vulnerable to say, hey, you know, I was about to tell you that the reason I'm voting is because I want to get woke out of the schools because I just got told I need to get that out of the schools or we got to fight Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, because she's so crazy or something. You know, it's like, even though I agree with that latter one, it's like, that's not your highest priority in life. Your highest priority is probably something closer to home. It's like, I want good things to happen to my kids. I want to be able to make it. I want to be able to have a world I can kind of be a part of and fulfilled by and find belonging and meaning in it. And if we let ourselves be vulnerable to say, you know, I, that is the deeper things I'm looking at, not just the latest thing I heard. I think that's where um, the openness to that, those types of conversations you brought up could happen. Yeah. And you kind of just touched on the idea of long-haul heroes there. And I want to get to that in a second because I think it really is fundamental. But I do wonder, and I'm just thinking this on the fly, so maybe it's silly, but I do wonder if the internet is almost like a modern-day World War I trench, right? There's that famous story. I can't remember exactly the date. It was on Christmas. It might have been 1917, where those two sides of no man's land, and they were deeply entrenched in their respective sides. And then, long story short, they kind of agreed on a ceasefire and came out to the middle of no man's land and they played, I believe, soccer and exchanged gifts and hugged. And then their senior officers heard about it and that was forbidden after that. The thing that I took away from that story is entire wars can be started and propagated and continued because we're told stories, again, about what the other side wants, what they're threatening to us, the fear of the other, right? And of course, yeah, sometimes that is true. Sometimes there are terrible people out there But usually that's just the leaders. Usually the people who are actually fighting the wars, to go back to something you were saying about the man on the street, might seem like a tenuous connection. But oftentimes we do, and I'm guilty of this myself, we can parrot the very things that our leaders or influencers have told us. And we just believe that, oh, okay, that's what I believe. And I'm also going to believe that the other side believes something that I've been told. When oftentimes, like, if you just get out of the trench and just go over and shake someone's hand and maybe exchange a gift, play a little bit of football, metaphorically or literally, you might realize that the very war you're fighting is not even a war you care about at all. Yeah, amen. You know, the the way this changes, though, it's the defeat of the category and the spectrum. It's not just kind of the ceasefire while keeping the category and the spectrum. So here's what I mean by that. I'm a little skeptical of these projects that are like, we are divided. There is a red side and a blue side. And The red side and the blue side are going to meet. They're going to send representatives to meet. They both care about having peace between these two sides, and they're going to meet, and they're going to have calm conversations with their red hat on and their blue hat on, and out of that is going to come the solution. I think very often in history, that is not how divides change. Because notice what happens when you do it that way. You are actually entrenching the divide by saying, I am accepting that you are on each of these sides, and I'm accepting that the way you have to meet is where you each share your sides, and you must talk in the same language that we've been talking in this fight, but just be calmer and be more listening. 
the real way it changes is half the people on one side start bowling with half the people on the other side, not knowing that they're on the other side or purposefully ignoring that they're on the other side and they get really into bowling. And then another set of people from one side, another set of other people from other side start going back to synagogue and they meet people at the synagogue and they do ceremonies and traditions together and they build relationships. And another set of people even stay within politics. They discover they're both into anti-monopoly policy and they form an anti-monopoly policy caucus. And they get so into anti-monopoly policy that the new dividing line is between the pro-monopoly people and the anti-monopoly people. And then another side is working at an office together some people from one side and some people on the other side are working at an office together and their bosses are some from one side and some from the other and they unionize and out of the transformative revolutionary almost religious experience of a strike after five years of building solidarity on the shop floor, they see more in common with their fellow workers than with their employees. And over that, you've had so many new divides drawn. You've had so many new relationships weaved that you can't even see the original dividing line. Or the original dividing line's there, but you have enough connections across the dividing line that everyone cools their jets a bit. That has happened hundreds and hundreds of times throughout American history. This is why we have these phrases like the sixth party system. It was not because there was a ceasefire between the fifth party system. And by the party systems, it's just when we say Democrats or Republicans it coherently means the same throughout time. So like Republicans now and Republicans during Ronald Reagan are roughly similar, but Republicans now and Republicans during Teddy Roosevelt are not roughly similar. So we have these like political science term, the party system. These party systems have changed not because of ceasefires. They've changed because of surprising new developments and surprising new communities that have made connections in surprising new ways that you wake up 30 years later and you don't even remember that there was a divide in another way. And so a multiplicity of new communities, new surprises, and honestly, it doesn't need to be all rainbows and unicorns, new divides that you're mad at other people for other reasons, <laughs> you know, that allow us to heal. The problem, which is the World War I analogy, the problem is not that there's fighting. The problem is that the fighting has stayed the same and not resolved itself for so long and that fact that everyone is forced to choose along one dividing line creates the further entrenchment when really a healthy civic life would be a lot of divides emerging, a lot of divides being resolved in a constant burbling of different divides that allows none of them to be so entrenched that they become what we have now. Yeah, there needs to be a kind of division churn. We need to go through many divisions. And it ties back to what you were saying earlier about how the challenges of increased diversity can simply be solved simply. <laughs> Easier said than done. But the solution is simple in practice in that all you have to do is, in the same way that you want to create new divisions to help bury old ones, you create new identities to make older ones less salient. What you just said there about the idea of trying to resolve a conflict while one person wears a red hat and the other person wears a blue hat, for whatever reason, that image just completely clicked for me because it makes me think to go back to couples therapy. It's like, Imagine if you and your significant other were always fighting over, let's say, the dishes, and your therapist gave you the advice, okay, so what I want the two of you to do is you're going to go on a fun date night, right? But what I've done is I've printed photos of dirty dishes on both of these t-shirts, and I want you both to wear these t-shirts, but just kind of ignore them. Don't think about the t-shirt. I want you to wear them. Yes, yes, yes. But just go out and have a fun date night, right? 
in the same way that if you ask two people on opposite sides of the political aisle to just have a fun night bowling, but one wore a Joe Biden t-shirt and the other one wore a Donald Trump t-shirt, if you're constantly being reminded of the things that make you different, right? Even if those differences ultimately aren't super salient to whether or not you can be friends or community members or lovers or whatever it might be, if you're constantly reminding yourself of those differences and framing your very identity of self by those differences or what your political affiliation is or what your whatever is, no matter how much you might have in common with another person, you're always remembered of the very thing you don't have in common. I don't know why that just clicked for me now, but you're right. The very idea of reaching across the divide while reminding the other person why you're divided seems so counterintuitive. Well, think about in the couple specific one, it's the best way maybe to solve the dishes problem is it's always some surprising orthogonal answer. It might be that you do something nice in some other area of the house and then your partner suddenly looks at your dishes in a new light or because you did something nice in the new area of the house, they go lighter on some other aspect that you're fighting over. And then you're feeling the warmth of the relationship more and remembering more why you got together in the first place. The next time they say that this just thing, they say it a little nicer and they say it as, you know, an I statement when, oh, you know, this is really important to me. And then because of the good feeling you had by doing the nice thing in the back porch and then them doing the nice thing about how you walk the dog, suddenly the dishes are solved when they say their next thing. You're like, you know, I'm ready to give in on this. Who cares? And that's what it is because you saw them at church and you saw them at the bowling alley. The next time they say something you hate, they say it in a way that makes you see it more and then you are ready to give in a little more and then suddenly it's resolved. Now, this does not mean that there aren't true justice movements and righteous causes that need to erode their values for the sake of harmony and community. You could think of community not just as a way to give up on your causes. You could think of it as a way to get your causes. That's why I love talking to union organizers because it's funny. Union organizers, I'm, I'm a Dem and I'm on the left of the spectrum. I like just being honest about it. Union organizers are some of the most lefty people in the left side of the spectrum. They're super radical. But they sound like centrists when they're talking about tactics. Because they're like, oh, you know, when you're trying to organize a union, you have to stop fighting about everything. You know, you can't go in there and say you're a Trump supporter and I'm a Bernie supporter and we disagree because you're trying to do something together. And they start sounding like Clintonian centrists when they're talking because they're like, we need to look past our differences to come together in this new community where we can all work together. But then they say the super lefty thing like to defeat the boss or, you know, <laughs> and something like that. But what that teaches is that sometimes the goal that you have, the righteous big goal, it might be very radical of the new dividing line you're trying to draw might require you to moderate yourself on some other things to achieve that larger thing. And it actually might make you have to be vulnerable because no one's going to listen to you and change if they don't believe you could listen to them and change. And you have to have enough faith in your cause that if you open yourself up to hearing the opposite side of their cause, you believe experience and in that transformative process where you build that relationship with someone who disagrees with you, your cause will still survive. Because I think partially... Some people fear connecting with people across divides because they're not confident enough in their causes. They're scared that if they were open up to some other opinion, they might not believe in the thing anymore. But that vulnerability is actually what's needed 
to advance any cause. And you have to believe if it is a cause that is righteous, it will survive the transformative experience of being vulnerable and having the conversation. Or you have to believe that whatever change of opinion you have through that transformative experience of developing a relationship with someone across the divide, if you end up believing in the cause slightly differently, you have to believe that that'll be what was meant to be. This involves courage. It does. I mean, triangulation, you know, going back to Bill Clinton in the 1990s, it gets a bad rap. But like you were saying, when you actually get to the nitty gritty of having to bring people together from opposite sides of a thing, you kind of have to do it. You can't reach a majority consensus without some kind of compromise. But I want to be sensitive to your time. And as we're kind of wrapping out, I I want to try and give you an opportunity to talk briefly about long haul heroes. And I want to tie it to a short essay you wrote called The Virtue of Not Being a Genius, in which you wrote, quote, Our nation's best accomplishments have been achieved by extraordinary, ordinary folks remembered much more for their open-hearted devotion and practical creativity than their mental majesty. The Ida B. Wellses and Benjamin Franklins, the Eleanor Roosevelts and Gifford Pinchot's in our history weren't once-in-a-century minds. They were just citizens who had a high estimation of their own significance and an open ear to the challenges calling them, end quote. And I was hoping maybe you could tie that to this collection of essays you're writing as a book called Slow Politics. Topics discussed include, quote, the need for longer-term civic projects, the flexible nature of our social structure, the power of civic creativity, and so on. And from this description of slow politics, and from the essays you've written so far on the subject that I've read, it feels like this collection is a companion book to Dedicated. Seems like kind of a spiritual successor. So I guess, Pete, to begin to wrap us out, what are the benefits of long-haul heroes and the virtues of not being a genius, so to speak? And how can people practice long-haul heroism in their day-to-day? You know, this is why long-haul heroism is what comes when you're committed to something, something good, usually. Solving a problem, healing a community, reviving an institution, honing a craft, achieving some victory for humanity. What I really strongly believe is that the way things happen is not through engineered blueprints, where you think up all the exact ways something's going to change. The world isn't some perfect Swiss clock that you can, and especially the social world, that you can know all the parts and fully see into, and thus you can know the exact intervention that you have to make to make it happen. It's much more organic than that. And it requires practical experimentation and learning over time to make any change. We don't need a genius person to come up with the blueprints of how to solve all the public problems we have. We just need people who are willing to do the experimentation over the long haul, going once more into the breach over and over and over again of solving a problem and being open to listening to what the next good step is. And that's usually how change happens. When you interview people who've solved things over a 20-year period, they're like, I wasn't doing the same thing over 20 years. I was just returning and returning and returning and returning to the problem and doing the improvisational jazz that is necessary to keep the ball moving forward on it. And so that's the connection between genius versus practical wisdom. So what people who change things are, are people who are willing to just keep going at it. So what my hope of how we heal this country, what the path forward is, is we need a lot of people. We need a large increase in the amount of people that are taking up working on making the world better. And that sounds really unprofound, but the funny thing is, It is a specific strategy of what is wrong with the world that could be falsifiable. There are some people who think what's wrong with the world is we need this one big silver bullet, 
or there's one way that we've designed institutions that are differently, or this specific nefarious force is the reason that the world's not good. What my theory is, is that it just doesn't have enough people working on it over the long run. And if we can increase the amount of people taking on kids need to be raised, people in need need to be cared for, tough problems need to be solved, tough divides need to be conquered. If we have enough people that are willing to take on each of these corners and work on them, I think that's the path to healing. John Dewey has this wonderful line, alas, the public has no hands except for individual human beings. W.E.B. Du Bois says this line, all the wisdom in the world is locked in the bosoms of ordinary people. You know, all of the ideas to be had, all the work to be done is going to be done by individual people. And my specific insight of it needing to be the long haul is I think most people are like, yeah, I'd love to be one of those people doing it. But if we just bop in and suddenly get overwhelmed by the anxiety of why am I working on this specific thing instead of the hundreds of other things we need to be working on, that's going to be a work avoidance excuse. And if we can overcome that hump of making that initial choice and being willing to stick at it for the long run, I think that's going to be what it takes. And you said that it doesn't sound so profound, but it is profound, I think. The older I've gotten, and I am definitely older today than I was yesterday, the more I appreciate those long-haul heroes, even before I knew what to call them, right? It's a term coined in your book, but one example that comes to mind is I would have professors at USC when I was there for graduate film school who had been there for decades. They were basically institutions within the institution. And I think because they were there for as long as they were, they were able to guide and mentor me through school as they had generations of kids before me and hopefully after me. Or similarly, like there's a local coffee shop here in my neighborhood in Los Angeles that was there before I arrived and hopefully will be there after I leave. And people who'd been in this neighborhood many years before I had have stories of that coffee shop. And it seems like a little thing. It's just a coffee shop. It's just a professor. But what you do so well in this book is show how if all these long-haul heroes, the artisans, the patriots, the citizens, etc., there are several different kinds you list. Together, they form a larger quilt of humanity, of society that makes life worth living. It makes it beautiful. What I'm trying to say, Pete, is I'm glad that you committed yourself, that you dedicated yourself to writing this book and doing the work that you've committed yourself to. And I'm glad that about 20 minutes into this conversation, I committed to setting aside my outline and having this rather spur-of-the-moment conversation because I'm so glad we walked down these garden paths together. It's been such a joy. And one of the reasons that I love talking with authors specifically on this podcast is because selfishly, I feel like I get to crib a bit of all the knowledge they had to absorb in order to write a book. And so selfishly, I say, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much. And this is going to sound corny way to end it. But what you're doing with this podcast and listeners, what you're doing with listening and participating in this is what makes us able to write books and what makes them have an impact. And so I really appreciate you participating in that community of practice of having a public intellectual life where things are discussed. This would be for naught if not for that. And so I appreciate your own work of long-haul heroism in making this happen. Thank you, Pete. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. 
I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.